Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I, I'm excited uh, this morning. Uh, I've asked Dan Berardini to share the word. Dan's been a deacon for many years, sat on our board. Uh, Dan teaches our Wednesday night adult study class, been doing a great job with that. Uh, he's retired from the Rochester uh police department and he uh has been in our church for many many years him and cheryl and uh the lord's just been impressed on his heart just to continue in the study of the word of god he's going through ministerial credentials right now with the assemblies of god and and uh, i'm really excited about what god is doing in dan's heart so i said hey dan why don't you why don't you just why don't you share the word with us he's he's done a fantastic job on wednesday nights just teaching god's word so i asked him to to just uh, share in that way and uh, many of you know Dan and, and Cheryl, and they're just a, a wonderful part of our fellowship. And I'm so glad to see where uh, God is leading him in his so-called uh, quote-unquote retirement. Uh, Dan homeschooled one of his grandkids this year, and uh, so he took on a lot with all the things that he's doing, especially around here at the church. He does the maintenance around our church, so uh, he is not retired. Uh, there's no such thing as retirement. Can I get an amen for those of you that retire? Thought, well, I'm going to retire, and it's like I got more work now than I did before. And uh, that, that epitomizes what Dan is doing. But I'm so thankful for Dan. And more than that, I'm thankful for Dan's heart for the Lord. He loves Jesus. And you can see what God has been doing in his heart. So would you just give Dan just a warm welcome as he comes and just shares God's word. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Morning. It's good to see you all. When Pastor invited me to speak today, I was uh, very grateful for the opportunity. But I didn't know what I should talk about. Normally, I only talk to the mop, so this is, this is a treat. But my decision got easier when I realized this might be the only chance I ever get to speak to you like this. And if I only get a chance to speak to somebody once, then I ought to talk about Jesus. So, if you don't mind... Today we'll talk about Jesus. And I'd like you to consider a particular question. Why choose Jesus? Why should we choose him and encourage other people to do so? And we're going to answer that question today from the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews was actually a letter written to Jewish Christians living in the first century under Roman authority. History makes it very clear it was not easy to be a Christian under the Romans. They aggressively persecuted the church. People were arrested, punished, and even executed for the crime of believing in Jesus Christ. And for converts from the Jewish faith, the Hebrews, they not only faced the persecution of Rome, they faced the persecution of their own people. Because for Jews to proclaim Jesus, what they were saying was Jesus was the fulfillment of all their religious efforts as Jews. He was the pinnacle of their faith. But the mainstream Jewish society didn't see it that way. To them, Jesus was a heretic. And everybody that followed him was a heretic who had walked away from the one true religion. So when a Jew professed Christ, they were often put out of the temple, put out of their families, and expelled from the community. They lost everything for the name of Jesus. And many wavered in their faith. It was too much. And they started to pull away from Jesus and go back to the relative safety and security of religion without Jesus. 
And this letter was written to them to encourage them not to go back, to remind them of the faith they had initially found and to stay the course through the hard times. And it was also a letter of exhortation, warning them of the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. Now, we are blessed because we live in a time and a place where we can worship freely and openly. So we don't face the kind of persecution they face, but there is another threat to our faith because we can be so comfortable and because we can be so secure. We run the risk of becoming complacent in our faith and losing track of how important it is. So even though we don't risk being driven away from our faith, we risk drifting away from our faith in our comfort. Either way, you end up separated from Jesus. Either way, the warnings and the encouragement of the letter to the Hebrews is just as important to us as it was to those first readers of this letter. Now, you can argue that the whole book of Hebrews answers the question, why choose Jesus? We're going to look at three of the arguments that the author puts out. The first one is that Jesus is greater than the angels. It's helpful if we have a little context to to really appreciate that. When the new church was coming together, from its earliest days, there were false teachings that crept in and threatened to distort and distract people from the true message of the gospel. And one of those false teachings had to do with angels. Angels in the Old Testament, the Jewish religion, they, they, they were pretty prominent there. You can read the books of the Old Testament, those are the Jewish scriptures, and you'll see angels referenced quite often. And when the Christian fellowship started to emerge, this idea of angels drifted over to that side. And there was this teaching, false teaching, that angels were the official intercessors between mankind and God. You believed in God, you prayed to God, but you would pray through an angel. Excuse me, Mr. Angel, would you give God a message for me? It was kind of how that went. It's the kind of thing that might give you a spiritual, warm and fuzzy feeling, but it doesn't align with the gospel, and it was a problem. And you had believers... Jews who had accepted the person of Christ and were now pulling away to go back to the old religion. So we see consider Hebrews chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Because what happens now is the author starts to make a comparison in this letter for his readers between Jesus and between the angels. So chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 reads, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. The author delineates the roles of the heavenly beings. There is the Father and there is the Son, and then there are the angels that worship the Son. Okay? Only Jesus is the Son. God never reached out to an angel and said, here, you come up and and you be my son for a while. It always was and it always will be Jesus. In verse 6, he talks about 
when God brings his firstborn into the world. Now, firstborn is an interesting concept. It was very important to the Hebrews because firstborn was the one who would receive the lion's share of wealth and authority and privilege within the family. So the writer says Jesus is the firstborn of God, and he says specifically when he brings his firstborn into the world. Think Christmas without Santa, elves, and reindeer. Okay, baby in the manger. This is the firstborn of God coming to us as us. And when that happens, he is the center of the attention. The angels worship him. So the author is laying out the role of angels. They are not intercessors. They are not intermediaries. They are there to worship. Okay? We are not given the luxury of altering the role of angels, as was being done with these false teachings. Consider again verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So now we see the progression of the salvation plan, the formula. The firstborn had come into the world. When these verses are being written, what they're referring to is the Lord who had left his seat in heaven. That seat beside God always was and always will be Jesus and Jesus alone. Nobody else can sit there. No man, no angel. Belonged to Jesus. He was with God in that seat from the beginning of beginnings. He left that seat voluntarily and temporarily to come here for a purpose. And when that purpose was done, he went back to the seat sitting by God. And that's where this verse refers. Sit at my right hand. In effect, you've done a good job. The work is done. Come and rest until it's time to bring everything to completion. And the angels are described as ministering spirits. Now, we have to be careful with that word minister. Because in the evolution of our church culture, that's been a little bit misaligned sometimes. Because often it's assigned and it's attributed to a person as an effort to lift them up a little bit. Give them a little bit more prestige, a better seat at the table. That's not what minister means. Minister means to serve. Minister isn't to lift up, it's to bring down, it's to humble. The angels are ministering spirits. Who do they minister to? Well, they minister to the Father. It's been declared they minister to the Son. And here in verse 14, it says they minister to those who will inherit salvation. That's us. That's us when we choose Jesus Christ. So he was the firstborn of resurrection, but not the last. He opened the door for us, and the angels are there to encourage and to assist us in that role. When we look at this, when these verses, and we look at the idea of Jesus being greater than the angels, it would be good for us to look at that in a broader scope in terms of spiritual considerations. That's really what this is. The author is laying out an argument in the spiritual world. He's talking about the Son of God. He's talking about the angels of God. All of this is dealing with the world beyond what we can see or perceive in our lives here. It's a world that through human history, it seems man is always instinctively known as there and desired to connect with. 
And the history of all of our religions and our movements and our philosophies bears this out as we've tried to define God and define the way to God. And there are, like there was then, there are now many, many spiritual paths that are available to us. And like any path, all spiritual paths will lead you someplace. But any spiritual path that politely ignores the Holy Spirit will not lead you to God. Only Jesus Christ. Consider the Gospel uh, of John. In chapter 14, the author writes of a dark hour. It's the eve of the Lord's arrest and his crucifixion. He's spending it with his closest friends. He knows what's going to happen. They don't. He's trying to prepare them. He's teaching them. He's trying to comfort them. And he says things like, I have to go away. But where I'm going, I'm going to make a place for you. And if I go and make a place for you, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you and I'm going to bring you with me and we'll be together. And they must not have been getting it. I can imagine all the blank stares in that room. So in an effort to assure them, basically he says, it's okay. He says, you know where I'm going. You know the way. And Thomas, bless his doubting heart, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The overarching mega-theme of the entire Bible is that Jesus is the Christ. He alone is the way to God. He alone is the truth of God. And he alone is the love that God gives and wants us to have. It's only Jesus. The second argument we're going to look at is that Jesus is greater than Moses. Personally, I don't have a hard, hard time with this. I don't think often about Moses. Usually just around Easter time when his movie comes back out. And I'm reminded of how much he looked like Charlton Heston. Other than that, he does not occupy my meditations. I'm, I'm more of a New Testament guy. But to the Jews who first read this letter, these would have been bold words indeed. Moses was revered. Moses was the pillar of their religion and their very identity, identity, and with good reason. Moses went into the court of the greatest king in the world at his time, the Pharaoh of Egypt. He squared off with him and stood his ground until Pharaoh relented and let the people go. Moses let him out. When they were trapped at the Red Sea and looking like they were all going to be killed, Moses parted those waters they went through safely. Moses took them through the desert, giving them food, giving them water. Moses went into the presence of God and lived and received the law from God and took it down the mountain and gave it to the people. And the the covenant of relationship was established with the Hebrews. And Moses took them to the border of the promised land. All of that is true, but it's not the whole truth. Because in the religion that developed and evolved over centuries, they came to focus on the man, but they they didn't adequately see the God who empowered the man. Because it was God who chose Moses, And brought him to Pharaoh. 
And it was God who did amazing signs through Moses until Pharaoh gave in. And it was Moses who led them out, not impoverished, but rich. Because as they were leaving Egypt, people would be saying, here, you take this, you take this, because you got to go. Thanks, but we, we don't want you here anymore. And they left rich. And when they were threatened at the Red Sea, it was God who parted those waters to save his people. Yes, Moses went up the mountain and received the law and gave it to the people, but God wrote the law. Moses was only a man, a great man, a great leader, but he was only a man, hardwired to fail because he's hardwired for sin just like every one of us. Everyone that's ever been born of the union of man and woman is hardwired to fail, and that was Moses. And they put their trust in him, and that limited what they could do. In chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, as the writer is now giving these Hebrews a comparison of the Jesus they're walking away from and the Moses they're going back to, he says, speaking of Jesus, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are that house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Even Moses, great as he was, couldn't make it into the promised land. Because in his flaw, in his failure, in his anger... He dishonored God, and he died in the desert. Because even Moses, on his own merits, could not achieve the standard of God. Another problem with the people putting all of their trust in Moses, and for us, we can look in this and say, as a warning against us putting our faith in any human being, historical or contemporary, it doesn't matter. The problem is, when you put your trust in a person, your trust is, is very fickle. When you're happy with the person, you lift them up. When you don't like what they're doing, you throw them under the bus. And you read the book of Exodus and this one on over and over and over again for 40 years. Because their, their eyes were on Moses more than they were on the God who had empowered Moses. Okay? So when you put your trust in a person like that, it opens us up for disobedience, for rebellion. Because we don't have the vision and the focus of leadership to sustain us through the hard times. So we see in Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. We can't trust in a human being and expect to make it all the way down the road. He'll take us part way. She'll take us part way. But no human being can take us all the way. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Most of us, I'm pretty sure, were not with Moses on that 40-year camping trip. But I'm also sure that every one of us is going to face a desert sometime in our lives and face a period of rebellion because our faith stumbles. If we put our trust in a person, historical or contemporary, we're going to fall down. Jesus and Jesus alone will take us all the way through. The third argument that we're going to look at. Jesus is greater than Aaron, the high priest. In that law that God gave to Moses and established with the people, that covenant of relationship between man and God, there was a priesthood that was a part of that. That was ordained by God. Priests at that time were the official intercessors between man and God. The common people could not go into the presence of God. It wasn't allowed. Only the priest on their behalf. And the priest would intercede for them and pray for them and would perform the the functions of the religion that were required by God. This was all legit. And they would offer the sacrifices that were required by God because the sin had to be Paid for by death. Set up by God. So the priest would offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. In chapter 4, starting at verse 14, the writer of this letter is telling his readers, yes, those were the priests and that was their job. But you've now found a greater priest, and you're thinking of walking away from him. And he lays out a comparison here. And in chapter 4, starting at verse 14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The writer is saying here, Hey, he's he's identifying Jesus as the Son of God. It's like, in case you forgot, this isn't just another teacher. This is the Son of God. Came from the right hand, went back to the right hand of the Father for us. And he's a better high priest than any of the ones that you're thinking of going back to. Now, in the Jewish tradition, they would have said, time out, foul. Jesus can't be a priest. 
because it was a very particular set, set up for the priests of the old covenant. Not every Jewish boy growing up could be a priest. The priest had to be a male from the tribe of Levi, who came through the house of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. Religion was a family thing. Only they could be priests. Priests served for life. This is all true. Priests offered the sacrifice. But Jesus' priesthood is greater. And he is a priest. And further down, in chapter 5, verse 5, He says of Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a name you don't hear every day, Melchizedek. This was a reference back to an earlier time before there was a nation of Israel, before there was a man named Israel. This was the time of Abraham, the grandfather of the man who would become Israel. And when Abraham lived in the land, five kings joined together in a confederation and attacked the land. And they vanquished many cities, they took the wealth, and they drove the people off into captivity. And among those people were members of Abraham's family, his nephew Lot and Lot's family. Now, Lot wasn't a lot, but he was Abraham's. And Abraham raised up his army, much smaller and insignificant than the armies he was going to face. But he marched out and he challenged them and he beat them down. And he, and he was victorious. And he recovered the wealth. And he freed the people. And over the horizon comes a figure nobody knows, this Melchizedek. And he comes to Abraham. They're strangers. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And Abraham takes a tenth of everything he's recovered, and he gives it to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek rides off again. And in chapter 7 of the letter, the writer comes back to this idea of Melchizedek, and he, he describes him in more detail for us. He says, this Melchizedek was a king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. The writer is telling his readers, Jesus is a priest. Not a Levitical priest, not from the house of Aaron. You're right, he's not that. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, in the old religion, a priest was a priest and a king was a king, and the two could not cross paths. The Old Testament gives us us examples of when kings tried to fulfill the office of priest. It did not go well for them. It was not approved by God. Jesus comes from a different priestly order. Like Melchizedek, priest and king. King of peace, priest to the Most High God. And his priesthood is better than Aaron's. Because the Levitical priesthood was limited. Priests served for life, but could only serve for life. When they died, their work 
remained undone, and another priest had to take their place and continue the work. And when they died, another one had to take the place. And it went on and on and on. Because the priests were limited by their mortality, and their sacrifice was limited. The sacrifice of furry little animals could atone for the sins of men, but only for a limited time. There was an expiration date. The sins of atonement, the sacrifice was made every year because the sacrifice was only good for a year. And then it had to be done again, and again, and again. Jesus is a different priest. And he compares him to Melchizedek as having no beginning and having no end. Now, in the example of Melchizedek, that's because they didn't know who he was. They didn't know where he came from. They didn't know where he was going. So, in effect, to them, he had no beginning. He had no end. But it's not so much that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, really, as it is Melchizedek was a model of the priest that was going to come in the person of Jesus who for real has no beginning and has no end, who is the Son of God. His priesthood is better because it hasn't ended. No more priests are necessary. No more priests are allowed because he is still our intercessor. Because as priest, he's not serving in a church or a temple down around here someplace. He serves in heaven. He serves as priest for us in the presence of God continuously until the end time comes. And his sacrifice was better because he didn't sacrifice a little animal. He sacrificed himself. And as the son of God who came from that right hand of God, he and he alone became the human being who was the perfect sacrifice. Because as as I've already read, he lived like us. His life was our life and always tempted like us but he never gave in. No sin. So he's not only the highest priest, he's the highest sacrifice. And as priest and sacrifice, ministering for us in the presence of God, he advocates for us. That lamb of God is not in front of God, groomed up nice and ready for show competition. No, he's wounded, he's cut, he's bloodied. And the priest and the sacrifice in the person of Jesus stand before God. And Jesus says, Papa, these are mine. These are mine. And when God looks at us, he sees his son. He says, yes. Bring them home. Bring them all home. For all that choose Jesus. So to answer the question that we started with today, the writer of Hebrews actually opens up his letter giving that answer. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact reputation of, I'm sorry, the exact representation of his being. 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. There are a lot of spiritual paths that we can pick. A lot of them, just like there always has been. But when we choose a spiritual path that tries to redefine God to our convenience, or we choose a religion designed to make us feel good, or we seek to connect with the supernatural by seeking the energy of the universe or by seeking connection with the spirits of animals and inanimate objects. When we look to the geometry of the world or the geology of the world for the power that we think they may hold, we deny the work of Jesus Christ. Because when he died, he paid the price for every one of us. Every one of us was born with a guilty verdict in our hands. And that guilty verdict required a death penalty. And Jesus paid that penalty for us, even though he had no penalty to be paid for. The old priests, they had to do sacrifices for the people and themselves. Jesus had nothing that needed to be sacrificed for. But he chose to give up his life to pay our penalty. And when they laid him in that tomb... He stayed dead long enough so that each of the guilty verdicts we held would be stamped, paid in full. And he got up. And he said, I won't be dead anymore. Now, don't look for that. That's not an actual verse. I see, where is that one? (laughs) But But what scripture does tell us is that death had no authority over Jesus. Jesus had authority over death. And when he died, it was for us. And when he rose, it was not a victory for himself. It was victory for us because he went up and threw open the gates of heaven and cleared everything out of the path so that all we have to do is follow him. When we choose these other spiritual roots, it's like we're putting stuff back into the path. It's like we're standing at the foot of the cross and looking at the bloody dying man, slapping him in the face and saying, thank you, but still needs a pinch of this and a dash of that. No. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. That's what the scripture tells us. So, why choose Jesus? Are you kidding me? is God. Amen. In a moment, the worship team is going to come up. They'll lead us in a closing song. So allow me a couple more moments just to give my closing ideas. If you've already answered this morning's question and you know the salvation of God, then please, before you leave, say a prayer. Thank him for the gift he's given you. And if you haven't, 
answered that question, then I encourage you to do it today. I encourage you to do it right now because today is the day. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Soften them and let them in. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with him and he with me. Those are words of comfort. Let him in today. My prayer for this morning is simply this. I pray that the Lord will bless every one of you and keep you and make his face shine on you every day of your lives. Amen.